God is bringing the Jewish people from across the planet back into the land of Israel. And replacement of theology cannot give God the praise for what he's done. When you ask them, well, who's responsible for what's happening? They would say, well, not God. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in the middle of a three-part series of messages entitled, When Heaven Comes to Earth, from chapter 21 of the Revelation. In this chapter, we see one of the final visions given to the Apostle John, in which God announces that following the tribulation period, he is coming to live with humanity forever and that he's making all things new. In this new heaven and new earth, sin and the effects of sin will no longer be present, and Christians will be able to enjoy the beauty of God's presence in all of His glory. Although it's impossible for our finite minds to fully comprehend all that that will entail, we do get a picture in verses 11 through 15. As we pick up, Pastor Carl describes the area known as the Holy of Holies, where the glory of God would descend at various times, first in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And we get some insight into what a phenomenal place heaven on earth will be during this time described in our passage. Here's a picture of the Western Wall. This is where Jews go today to worship. Why do they worship at this wall? This, by the way, is just the retaining wall for the Temple Mount. When Jesus said not one stone would be upon, left upon another, he's talking about the structure that was up on top of that mount, on top of that platform. But this is the Western Wall. And for some 500 years, Jews have gone here. There were some times when it was blocked out, and there were times when they had to go to the Eastern Wall to worship. But this is the closest place a Jew could get to where the temple was located right above. Most Jews think it's right where the Dome of the Rock is. Some put it north of the Dome of the Rock. Some put it south. But it is as close as they can get. And what's important to them is not the wall. The wall means nothing to them. It's what's on the other side of that wall. Because that's where the glory of God literally actually appeared. Um, The prophet Ezekiel later saw the Shekinah glory of God leave. Let me read to you from Ezekiel chapter 10. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple. And the temple was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And then we read in the next chapter, chapter 11, the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain, which is east of the city. So here's Ezekiel, and he sees the glory of God depart, and it makes its last stop there on the top of the Mount of Olives. Then, of course, the second temple is built. The first temple was destroyed and obliterated by the Babylonians. Then, if you remember, they come back. Nehemiah builds the walls so that they can build the temple. They build the second temple. That's the one that Herod later gives a facelift two centuries later. But when they dedicate that temple, the glory of God never came back. And they never again saw the Shekinah glory of God. For 400 years, the temple was empty. They longed, they prayed, they they asked God's presence to come back. And then the next time you see the glory of God, the eighth time, the Shekinah, 
is in a little field outside of Bethlehem where some shepherds are raising Passover sheep. That's where they were raised. And the Bible says, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. John will also, in reference to the birth of Christ, describe the doxa, the glory of the Father being tabernacled in the Son. And so even in Jesus, though his flesh veils the glory of God, the glory of God was present. And if you remember for a brief moment, there on the Mount of Transfiguration, they see a glimpse of the glory of Christ. Later on, after the ascension in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, he preaches a powerful sermon. He reviews the whole Old Testament. You want to know what the Old Testament is about? Read Acts 7. If you can understand the events of Acts 7, I have the whole book of Acts, verse by verse, exposited. You'll get a handle on the entire Old Testament. And he goes through the whole Old Testament without notes, without any written scripture. He just, just speaks it. What a man of God. And they are convicted to the core. And they grit their teeth. And they pick up stones. And the first martyr of the church falls. And he looks up and he sees the Shekinah, the glory of God as Jesus is standing in heaven and as he is welcomed. The next time is in Acts chapter 9. Paul had been persecuting the church. He's on his way to Damascus. And then suddenly as he's traveling down the Damascus road, the glorious light of the resurrection, the Shekinah brightness of God appears again and blinds him. The next time was in Revelation 1.17, where we saw the apostle John get a glimpse of Christ's heavenly glory. And if you remember, he fell down at his feet like a dead man. So here in this vision, John sees a full and open disclosure of the glory of God. Today, we get a glimpse of God's glory, I suppose, even in dwelling a believer when you see at moments that Christ-like behavior, but it ain't nothing to what we're going to see someday. And it is so bright and it is so glorious, it will light all of heaven, the very glory of God. Having the glory of God, verse 11, her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. You know, I don't know how to describe this except to say that this is a phenomenal place. And I suppose those words are not even adequate. It's just breathtaking. It blows him away. You know, a bride prepares herself. She goes through all the preparations, her hair, her makeup, her dress, everything, so that when she comes down the aisle, she is as presentable as she can be to her groom. Well, God is preparing a place just like that, and it will be so breathtaking, so awesome, you will hardly be able to speak. In addition to being a phenomenal place, beginning in verse 12, I want you to see that heaven is a private place. In verses 12 through 14, we're given some of the major specifications of this city. And it's described in a way in that we can relate, and rightly so, because it's a real place. There's foundations, there's walls, there's gates, there's shape, there's size to it. Look at verse 12. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels. So it has a great and high wall. For what purpose? As a means of defense? Obviously not. There's no sin. All the sin is now forever gone, forever, out of the whole universe. But this is a beautiful city, just like God's earth, or an expression of his creative hand. So is this place. 
You're made in the image of God. This is not some nirvana like our Hindu friends think. This is a real place with real walls. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the 12 gates, 12 angels. Now, the number 12 is pretty prominent in the Revelation, and especially in this section of Scripture. You might want to circle the word, the number 12. I notice there are 12 tribes of Israel. I have that circled. There are 12 foundations. There are 12 apostles. There are 12 pearls, and we've already studied back in, or we will study in chapter 22, verse 2, of 12 kinds of fruit. So 12 is an important number. And Peter, notice, is not standing at one of these gates. (laughs) Peter has been forever standing at the gates and a lot of jokes. That's bad theology. Peter is not standing at any gate. He is an inhabitant of this place. But there are 12 angels there to welcome you. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates, not the gates, 12 angels. And notice, and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. So each of the 12 gates is named, and they're named with one of the sons of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel which reminds us that even in eternity, Israel will have a distinctive role in God's plan. God has never forgotten the 12 tribes. When God made a covenant with Abraham, he said, I will make an everlasting, you know what everlasting means? It means it lasts forever. An everlasting covenant. I've loved you with an everlasting love. And put out in the margin, would you... um, Ezekiel 48, 31 to 34. Put that out in the margin next to verses 12 and 13. You can go home and study the whole chapter later, but let me just read at least one of those verses. Ezekiel 48, he's talking about a different temple. He's talking about the millennial temple, but this is important. There were three gates on the east and three gates on the north and three gates on the south and three gates on the west. So the millennial temple is structured very similarly to the New Jerusalem. And when you go and you read that chapter of Scripture, you're going to discover that there in the Millennial Temple, there are also 12 names that are written on the 12 gates. And one of those names will be Dan. Remember Dan? We studied him back in Revelation 7 by the fact that he wasn't listed. And the 12 tribes where God raises up 144,000 Jewish people. Dan, that tribe, because of their idolatry, was not given the privilege to share the gospel during the seven-year tribulation period, but they will be reinstated during the thousand-year reign of Christ. Read Ezekiel 48. Remember, there's different temples. Keep them straight in your mind. First, there's the tabernacle. That's the portable tent. Then there's the Solomonic temple. Then that's destroyed when the Babylonians come, and Zerubbabel builds a second temple. Zerubbabel uh, starts it, does a good job, uh, but it's Herod the Great who makes it magnificent. He makes it breathtaking. And uh, he did some things to the Temple Mount that we still see there today, his work, his handiwork. That was destroyed in 70 AD. There's going to be a fourth temple that we've studied, if you include the tabernacle, which is also called the temple in one case when it's in Shiloh for 350 years. There's another temple, the third physical temple, the fourth in terms of terminology. It's the place where the Antichrist will go and defile. 
But then there's going to be a fifth temple, so to speak, or you could call it number four in terms of permanent structure, in that it will be the millennial temple. So for a thousand years, there'll be a temple in Jerusalem where people who are born during that time, because remember, folks will enter into the millennial reign of Christ who survive the tribulation in their natural bodies. They'll have children, great-grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and it will be a teaching tool, not just for them, but for us. If you've ever studied the tabernacle or the temple, it's like mind-blowing. It's like every single dimension of the tabernacle later in the temple spoke about who Jesus is and what he would accomplish for us. And God will use that as a teaching tool, as an evangelistic tool, much like I suppose the Lord's table is used today, not only to remind us, but sometimes to speak to the hearts of unbelievers who come and watch us. Look at verse 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 tribes of the 12 apostles. So not only do you have the 12 gates with the 12 names of the tribes of Israel, but now we have the 12 foundation stones that have the name of the 12 apostles. By the way, what a mix, and what a final blow to replacement theology. Now, replacement theology, I know that's a term that's kind of new to some of you, but it's an important term. Again, it summarizes born-again Christians today and non-born-again Christians, those who are nominal Christians, who say that God's done with the people of Israel. And it's very sad what they teach because they are lulling the church to sleep about what God said would happen at the end of time. You see, in the Old Testament, let me read to you from the book of Leviticus, chapter 26. Some of you uh, don't spend too much time in Leviticus, I know. But Leviticus 3.16 is as inspired as John 3.16. It's all God's word. Moses said, God speaking through him, I will make the land desolate so that your enemies who settle in it will be appalled over it. You, however, I will scatter among the nations and draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. What's he talking about? Now, again, those who teach replacement theology say, well, he's talking about the Babylonian exile and the Assyrian exile and when the Assyrians came down and crushed the Jews and when the Babylonians did later on. No, that's not what he's talking about. In 722 BC, the Assyrians came, carried away the 10 northern tribes. They carried them to a certain geographical location. They are overthrown by another people called the Babylonians. And in 586 B.C., they come down and carry away the two southern tribes to the same geographical location. Moses is talking about the Jews being scattered to the nations of the world. When did that happen? Jesus spoke of when it would happen. If you remember, on Wednesday before the crucifixion, he was on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples are commenting on the temple buildings, and they ask him about the temple and they ask him about his return from heaven. And he says this concerning the destruction of the temple. And they will fall, the Jewish people, by the edge of the sword and will be led captive, where? Into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. In 70 AD, a general by the name of Titus Vespucian came in and he did exactly what Jesus prophesied. 
and he destroyed the temple. Not one stone was left upon another. He decimated the city. The Jews were scattered. Some were kept. By 135 AD, they're all gone. They're scattered to the nations of the world with a few handfuls left. But for the most part, they're gone, scattered to the nations. That's what Moses said 1,400 years before Christ. That's what Jesus said on the Temple Mount. Now, stay with me. This is not boring if you can see what God wants you to see today. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4, 2,500 years ago, Moses wrote this. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long on it, but will be utterly destroyed. The Lord will scatter you where? Among the peoples, among the goyim, among the nations. And you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. But then Moses immediately promises in the same chapter, when you are in distress and all these things have come upon you, in the latter days, if you know your Bible, you know the phrase, the latter days refer to the final time frame in human history where the Messiah comes a second time, what we call the second coming of Jesus, when he sets up his kingdom. Moses says here, in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. Then in Deuteronomy 28, he warns, it shall come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you, and you will be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth, we're not talking about Babylon or Assyria, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. But again, 1,400 years before Christ, 2,500 years ago, thereabouts, chapter 30, God promises, if your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possess, and you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Listen to what the prophet Ezekiel said. He lives 800 years before Jesus. For I will take you from the nations. That's where they've been scattered. Remember, God said, I'll scatter you. I'll make the land desolate. When I was in Israel in September, one of the people in the church said, Pastor Carl, I don't mean to be rude, but this sure doesn't look like the land of flowing with milk and honey. It looks pretty desolate. That's what God said would happen. It was left desolate. And through just ignoring the cultivation of the land, some parts of Israel turned into a swamp. And so the whole northern Galilean region, and this brother in the back who was raised there, Dan can tell you, or in other parts, it just became like a, a rock desert. God brought a judgment on the land. So when you see Moses and sending the spies in and they come in with all this magnificent fruit that's a picture of the land, it's like, what happened? God judged the land. But God said in the end of time, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. Now listen, Ezekiel 38, next chapter. After many days you will be summoned, when in the latter years you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations. I don't know if you know this, but this is a remarkable moment that we are living at in human history. There's never been a nation 
in all of recorded history, and there's only 6,000 years of recorded history, where nations ceased to exist, and then they became a nation again. But God said of his Jewish people, because of your disobedience, because of your unbelief, and the final nail in the coffin was when they as a nation formally rejected Jesus as the Savior, he spread them to the nations of the world. It was a judgment of God. But God said at the end of time, and you read what Moses writes, you read what Ezekiel writes, and he's describing that time frame when the Messiah, it has to refer to his second coming, will rule and reign on the earth. It's never happened. Jesus never had the governments of this world on his shoulders, but he will at his second coming. He will gather the people from across the planet, and he will bring them back into the land. And so the Zionist movement began primarily in the 1890s. There were 25,000 Jewish people in Israel the first time we have demographics in 1890. When they become a nation on May the 14th, 1948, and the prophet Isaiah said they'll become a nation in one day, they had 600,000 Jews living in Israel. When I started the Revelation series two plus years ago, they had 6.2 million Jews living there. This morning, they have 6.8 million Jews, and most would acknowledge there's only about 12.5 million Jews in the whole planet. A little sliver of land about the size of Delaware, a sliver of people compared to the 7.6 billion people across the planet, and they are the focus of the news virtually every single day. Why? Because God is fulfilling prophecy. He is keeping his promise because he cannot lie. We are seeing something happening that God would say, said would happen at the very end of time. And if these prophecies are coming true in our life, how soon might it be before we stand face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, unlike Harold Camping and others like him, I do not know when Jesus will precisely return because no one knows the day or the hour. But when we see prophecy relating to the second coming being fulfilled in our day, we know the rapture that is seven plus years before that is all that much closer. Listen, replacement theology cannot give God glory for what he did when in one day he made Israel a nation. You go to Israel today, there are all kinds of languages in addition to Hebrew that are spoken. There are Jews that are speaking over a hundred languages in that piece of land because God is bringing the Jewish people from across the planet back into the land of Israel. And replacement of theology cannot give God the praise for what he's done. When you ask them, well, who's responsible for what's happening? They would say, well, not God. And they were repudiating one of the greatest proofs that God recorded in Holy Scripture that he is very much involved in that nation. This should be a wake-up call to the church because remember at the end of time, the church will be lethargic. It will be lukewarm, the Bible teaches. And you don't want to become a part of that lukewarm generation. Replacement theology is very dangerous because, among other things, it feeds the spirit of anti-Semitism. 
Not by choice. I'm not saying that my Reformed brothers who teach replacement theology are anti-Semites, because they're not. The love of Christ has been poured out in their heart, and they love people, but they see nothing unique for Israel. Because of a lack of teaching about God's future for Israel, they've created a vacuum for the anti-Semite to walk in. This is true in all realms of theology. For instance, if a pastor only preaches on the love of God, and he fails to preach on the wrath of God and a place called hell then he has created a distorted view of God. Or if a pastor, say, refuses to teach on the gender distinctions of our day since the creation of Adam and Eve, I made them male and female. And it just seems like every week something new is coming down the pike. And so one of the major cereal companies just made for us transgender LBGTQ cereal. Wonderful. I won't buy from them anymore if I don't have to. Last week, the Coca-Cola company created a commercial where they showed three mothers helping their children to transgender themselves. Sick. But you see, if you refuse to teach what God says, then you create a vacuum, and perversion enters into the land. And God gave a great warning when he made this covenant with Abraham, when he established this nation. He said, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you with me, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Every Christian today is blessed because of the Jewish people. We have a Jewish book. Every author of your Bible is Jewish, and your Savior is Jewish. We are blessed because of the Jewish people. And by default, when replacement theology does not teach what God says about the Jewish people, it opens the door for the anti-Semite to walk right through. And I want to tell you, people who are anti-Semites are people who do not know the living God. God will do what he said. I will curse those who curse you. The very first anti-Semite we find in Scripture was the Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And so under a means of population control, he killed all the little Jewish baby boys. And then God brought the destroyer through the land, and he killed the firstborn in every house. And he ended up drowning Pharaoh and his entire army. And they came under the Abrahamic curse as they became fish food there in the Red Sea. I will curse those who curse you. Where are all the Canaanite people who persecuted the Jews? They're gone. Not a single one of their nations exists today. Where is Haman and his sons who sought to destroy the Jewish people? They were all hung on the gallows. Why? Because they will curse those who curse you. Where is the Persian Empire? Where is the Babylonian Empire? Where is the Ottoman Empire? Where is Adolf Hitler? Where is his Nazi Empire? They are all gone. Why? Because I will curse those who curse you. But where is Israel? They are on a tiny slice of land, and they were powerful, they prosper, and they were very much alive. And we need to shout that in defiance of replacement theology that Israel lives. We need to shout it to all the anti-Semites living in Jerusalem this morning that Israel lives. We need to shout it from the housetops to those in the United Nations who year after year, month after month, write laws, so to speak, against Israel that Israel lives. 
tomorrow we'll conclude our message, part two of When Heaven Comes to Earth, and Pastor Carl will give further evidence of Israel's active role in the end times. To listen again to this look at what heaven is like and how it will one day be manifested on earth, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV64. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. Tomorrow, the conclusion of Part 2 of When Heaven Comes to Earth. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.